you can't fix what you don't measure. So if that one thing you're talking about, Nick, is, you know, what is it that sticks out the most? To me, it's it's measurable. Ace, here you've got a $125 million advanced research facility that you can use by the hour. Or you can use... A driverless vehicle, and the doors get locked, and the car is speeding at 150 kilometers an hour, and you get a message, pay me through cryptocurrency so much money, only then I will stop with you. We, something that the APMA has been working on, I guess for about two years now, uh, again, pre-COVID, what does online learning look like for production line workers? COVID hit, and then suddenly we were right in step with everyone else online. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Making It in Ontario, the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. I'm your host, Nick Persichilli. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live at the APMA conference on December 7th, 2021, and it was great to see people again in person. Fists and elbow bumps abounded as we donned our masks and worked the room. It was an extrovert's dream come true, especially if that extrovert wanted to discuss automotive manufacturing. Ontario's automotive manufacturing sector has over a century's worth of experience in productivity, in making high-quality products, and in innovation. We touched on this a bit before in our episode on Windsor, and the region's shifting priorities from primarily automotive manufacturing to automobility. But there's a lot more to the story than just that. To be fair, it would be almost impossible to do just one episode on all the things that are happening in automotive, so we did the next best thing. In this episode, I have four separate interviews with five different people about the different aspects and shifting realities of automotive manufacturing here in Ontario. My first chat was with Mike Rosas, Vice President for North America for Virtualware, and Mike Bilton, Chair of the APMA's Tooling and Automation Group, about the challenges and uses of Industry 4.0. Next, I chat with John Komar, Executive Director at Ontario Tech University's Automotive Centre of Excellence, about his state-of-the-art wind tunnel and what it means for SMEs in Ontario, not just automotive. Then I speak with AJ Khan, President of the Global Syndicate for Mobility Cybersecurity, about the implications of cybersecurity and connected vehicles. And finally, I speak with Lauren Tedesco, Vice President of Learning and Development at the APMA, about the challenges of workforce development in the automotive sector. So with that, let's talk about the car of the future and how we can make it in Ontario. Here we are. We're at the APMA conference, and I'm speaking to two mics in front of two mics. It's been a great day so far. Gentlemen, why don't you please introduce yourselves? All right, well, I'll start. Uh, my name is Michael Rosas. I'm a VP for North America at Virtualware. And now we have Mike, too. Yeah, hi. Uh, thanks for having me. Mike Bilton, chair of APMA's Tooling and Automation Group. Thank you both for joining me in front of the mics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, there's going to be no shortage of puns on that here, so <laughs> brace yourselves. It's a good one. Yeah, so we're at the APMA conference. Mm. And um, Mike, you and I just uh, kind of quickly passed each other do a quick fist bump because it's been a while since we've seen each other. And then we yeah. started talking about Industry 4.0. Yeah. For the people who, weren't, who, didn't have, who, doesn't, who don't have the benefit of having been in the room when we chatted about that, why don't you quickly bring, us up to, bring everyone up to speed about what we chatted about and what we're going to probably talk about here. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's get right to it. I mean, when it comes to 4.0, there's really, I think, two different buckets of of obligation for us to talk about. One, I think, is the implementation of 4.0 and what it means to vehicles of the future, if we're talking automotive-specific. And two is, I think I, th- I think I like to latch on to what you're talking about and demystifying what Industry 4.0 looks like. I think I'll look across the table to let the other Mike uh, <laughs> introduce not only himself, but what it is that he does, because really when it comes to, uh, you know, the full application of software and technology, and then the physical and, uh, you know, and the concrete applications of them in automotive. Maybe it's a good idea Mike starts with, with maybe where he's at and what his applications look like. Yeah, I mean, I think um, starting off with this whole idea of demystifying, let's just say, um, I think probably the biggest thing that I usually, when I have conversations uh, around the subject, is the idea of a mindset shift. Uh, ultimately, it's not necessarily what you do, it's how you do it. And I think that that's really where... Uh, Everybody can start to really start to reflect in regards to their own operations um, because oftentimes it's like, oh, well, what about this thing or this piece of technology and all kinds of stuff like that? Um, it's, it, it's not about it. It's about how you're doing things and re, sort of retraining that tool that's, you know, our, our brain into thinking. Uh, we used to do things, you know, back in the day, we used to carve things in rocks and then, you know, paper and all, and 
where, where are we now, right? Um, and so in regards to myself, um, you know, I'm, I'm taking, the, well, I'm, uh, let's just say, an ambassador. I'm trying to bring people to even the virtual world, right? But ultimately, what I bring to the table is being able to uh, work with people who are in the, in the industrial sector yeah. and be able to find some of these challenges that they're having, understanding that they need, to, they know that they have to, to change, but putting it in a context that's actually useful for them. And you were, you were mentioning it earlier that actually bring results. Uh, and that's probably the biggest challenge right now, given the fact that things are moving so quickly. Yeah. Um, you know, being able to actually have uh, case studies that, uh, that show this, even in the automotive sector, it's still something that's very new. And so being able to actually bring on people who are early adopters is key, I think, is, is, is a big one. And then again, starting off with that idea of, of a mindset shift. Yeah. Right? It's not, it's, it's not it, like if we think about technology and it's just like, like the cell phone, the cell phone at some point is going to be something that we're going to look back like everything else and say, can you imagine? We used to use this stuff, right? Yeah. This doesn't matter. Well, it's technology, gonna, yeah. Exactly. It's going to yeah. be how are we utilizing the technology that is going to become extremely powerful and utilize, and on, on my end, be able to help in regards to immersive technologies where now we are living within the digital space. We are, are actually functioning, working. Um, um, innovating uh, within that. So a little bit, I mean, <laughs> I probably went a little bit longer than I, uh, I could have there, but, but ultimately that's, um, that's just a little bit of a background, at least to just get things started. Yeah. So on one of my interviews, I chatted with this company that they, they, ha they have an Industry 4.0 solution, but what, what really got to me was the simplicity of what they were looking, of what they were asking of their I'm being very reductive. They're 4.0 machine, yeah. if you will, right? Mm. All they use it for is to monitor their equipment and make sure that it's running because they run lights out. Mm. So if a machine shuts off at night, the appropriate manager gets a notification on their phone. Mm -hmm. yeah. They show up. Is it down? Yes, it is. Click it back up. You're still on schedule. All they used it for was scheduling mm -hmm. and to make sure that they're machines running or when they're when they're supposed to be running yeah. they're not running when they're not supposed to be running and that's it mm -hmm. there's no yeah. like and, and that's what i think a lot of people don't understand your your industry 4.0 journey needs to start with what i've been told from some other people and i feel free to uh, add your two mm -hmm. cents on this i've been told that you start your industry 4.0 journey with one thing one one thing yeah. you're monitoring is yeah. that is that fair to say well it's measurement you know you can't and I often say this a lot to my colleagues, you know, because I'm, I'm sort of a student of Six Sigma. Mm -hmm. And if it's one thing that Six Sigma teaches us is that you, you can't fix what you don't measure. So if that one thing you're talking about, Nick, is, you know, what is it that sticks out the most? To me, it's, it's measurables, right? By applying that, you can't fix what you don't measure. Mm -hmm. You know, 4.0, it really is the first line of defense for monitoring your equipment, you know, and being able to benchmark yourself to know how to improve. And those are the things that you can control, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, I talked about, you know, a highly competitive environment in automotive. Controlling the things that you can control. This is one mm -hmm. of them, right? Mm -hmm. You can control how you monitor your efficiency and your overall equipment efficiency on your equipment. And if you're not there to monitor it, then you've got downtime. And downtime equals cost there, of course. We all know that. Yeah. But if it's one thing for sure that 4.0 has its advantage and it sticks out in my brain at least is mm -hmm. the measurability and the, you know, the rapidness of being able to get to, uh, to fixing those fixes. But also key stakeholders. I mean, we understand that, and especially when there are these big projects, there's that ability. And what you even just talked about earlier, sort of like wrapping in that whole idea of like the people who are actually making decisions on the investments that they're doing. Um, having them be a part of the process and the ability for them to yeah. actually uh, uh, see what's going on is mm -hmm. a huge key. And, and so, again, that, uh, bridging that gap mm -hmm. where it's easy for them to be able to actually go into these immersive technologies, view the digital twin, be able yeah. to say, okay, I understand it's not... And, I mean, and this goes all the way to even, you know, Premier Ford was here earlier, being able to bring someone like that so they understand the capabilities of what we could be building for yeah. the future of, of, of manufacturing and plants. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, and just to sort of uh, um, wrap it up there, um, the beauty of that is that now it goes down through the value, uh, your, your value chain. So you've you got your engineering, your design, right? And so the next uh, step of implementation that we're going to be doing is training. So training before the actual plant is opened. 
and being able to work with with universities uh, to be able to bring this technology so that they could start to form uh, the workers of the future who are actually going to be manning these uh, these advanced plants. and so also, I'll just stop right there. But you know, that's one of the one of the things that actually is is, is happening right now. We're breaking ground with that. Um, that's there's exciting. Be more more to come. But I think yeah. hopefully that'll be a, an opportunity for everybody to also just see and then get animated about what we yeah. can potentially. That's do exciting. With this. That's really good news. That's yeah. awesome. Very so nice. if I if I can, uh, so you know, we're talking about what what it is that we're actually doing, mm-hmm. and where do we actually see where the rubber hits the road? Yes. So Mike talked about you know, training as an element but more so when you're looking at the factory of the future and nick you and i spoke about flexibility down on the on the on the floor Mm -hmm. you know looking the way things are going where you take your legacy type environment right now with your factories we've got a long 80 or 90 meter 100 meter long assembly line that's traditionally what we see as a high volume environment where you're spitting out you know a car every you know 65 or 70 seconds Mm. albeit right the way things are going in a typical fashion, at least the way I see it, is you know using the virtual tech and virtual reality and digital twinning elements mm-hmm. of seeing ergonomically and literally by f- size of an actual footprint of a cell on the shop floor in the factory, mm-hmm. saying, look, because customization is going to be up, personalize- personalization is the future, and so is modular type of assembly lines. Right. Those are the way, this is the way it's going to be. And, you know, with referring back to the old style of traditional, you know, mass production volume type assembly process and, 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 and uh, all the products that come out of that. Now you can actually take virtual technology and physically not only map out what it's going to look like on your floor, but it also gives your engineers and the people who are actually going to be pushing the buttons and, mm-hmm. and moving the parts from place to place, if it's not going to be a robot, mm-hmm. you've got the ability to be able to not only, like I said, train those people, but actually be able to manage your floor space, mm-hmm. which is a huge thing, right? The factory of the future will will 100% going, it's going to be shifting to a modular type yeah. assembly uh, environment. Mm-hmm. Whereas, because the product coming in through a work in progress or a whip bin mm-hmm. is going to be, yeah, maybe one substrate of a widget that, you know, maybe is, you know, looks sort of like a, you know, a 10 by 10 thing. Mm-hmm. Now it's going to be, well, now there's eight or nine different versions of that. And if your assembly line style changes to more of a square environment where one of those parts comes in and it's going to be personalized eight different ways, the modular type assembly station is what is going to make that happen personalization on vehicles is going to be a huge element in mm-hmm. the, the vehicle of the future we know that we just heard how many speakers on the floor today talk about that right mm-hmm. and we're going to hear a lot about that about project arrow we're mm-hmm. in fact with project arrow at the apma mm-hmm. we're we're leaning heavily on the digital digital twin mm-hmm. uh, of of that vehicle because it gives myself and the rest of the team uh, with Colin and 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 and, and right. Fraser, it, it gives us a chance to be able to understand. Look, this is what it's going to look like, but from there, we can now say, oh, "Here's what it's going to cost," mm-hmm. right? And yeah. we can we can manage that in a proactive way. And I think that's something to be said about you know just sort of piggybacking on what Mike was mm-hmm. talking about. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to understand where Industry 4.0 leaves its fingerprints and where it sort of shows its face. And right. it's going to, we're going to see a whole lot more of that over the next, ten, you know, five, six, eight years. So let's just say there's a, someone out there who's listening to this and they want to start their industry 4.0 journey. How do they get a hold of you? Oh, uh, well, you could uh, check us out at uh, virtualwareco.com. Uh, my email is emmabrosas, R-O-S-A-S, at virtualwareco.com. Um, you could also check me out on LinkedIn um, under Michael Rosas. Fantastic. And that was one Mike. What about the other Mike? Yeah, thanks, Nick. Uh, yeah, so Mike Bilton, uh, you can reach me at uh, mbilton at apma.ca. And you can also check out our product and uh, more information on the APMA's Tooling and Automation Committee uh, on the website as well, apma.ca. Well, Mike's, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, anything else you guys wanted to add? No, Nick, It's. Uh, I just want to say it's good to see you again. It's good been a couple years uh, since it's been a face-to-face thing. It's nice to high-five. Agreed. Someone in here clapping in a, in a real space. So, yeah. Hey, listen, we really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. Thank you guys both. Yeah. Yes, thank you very much. And we're back. 
and we're back. Mm-hmm. See how I mean? I just finished telling you, John. <laughs> it's a conversational thing, and we're back in the ante room at the APMA conference. And I'm speaking with a gentleman who just won an award. Would you please introduce yourself, sir? Uh, my name is John Comar. I'm executive director at Ontario Tech University Automotive Center of Excellence. Congratulations. And tell us a little bit about your award. Well, the award uh, essentially is is the support and promotion of technology. And, and Ontario Tech University uh, really is uh, has a mission of tech with a conscience, technology that serves society in, in beneficial ways. So uh, the ACE, Automotive Centre of Excellence, is... Uh, is one of the uh, core research facilities at the university supporting uh, Project Arrow and the and the initiative of electric vehicles. Right on. So when, we, when I first sat down with you just before lunch, um, we were talking about the wind tunnel. Yes. And, but that was, of course, we, we know that's just one of the things you guys do. Right. But let's start with the wind tunnel because I think everybody knows what a wind tunnel is, right? Yeah, a wind tunnel... Um, there's not a lot of them in the world, actually, to tell you the honest truth. So they're, uh, they're an experimental aerodynamics. So, let's, so we're doing things that are physical. We're doing real things. So we have a one-of-a-kind, and I would call it the most sophisticated climatic wind tunnel in the world. Because not only is it a climatic wind tunnel that does heat management, thermodynamics, all with uh, wind speeds and simulations. It's a physical simulation. We also do now, we just had a recent enhancement project that we do acoustics and the most sophisticated clim- uh, climatic aerodynamics using a moving ground plane or a full belt rolling road for uh, land vehicles. So we have a wind tunnel that not only can do climatic wind tunnel work, minus 40 to plus 60 with full solar array, full uh, spectrum, uh, on the solar array, but because when it's hot, it's sunny. But we also have world-class air airflow, and we have world-class aerodynamic measurement using the best ground simulation, which is the best simulation in the world today with respect to aerodynamics of a land vehicle. So you've got a wind tunnel and a treadmill. Well, you know what? I'm going to correct you right there, and I'm going to correct a lot of people. It looks like a treadmill. But in fact, if you stomp on it, I'm going to be out about a quarter million dollars. So in fact, uh, it isn't under power. That's what the dynamometer is. The dynamometer is actually a roller treadmill that induces or relaxes or actually gives you the wind resistance or the climbing resistance that a vehicle would see. And we have this in the tunnel. And then this 150,000 pound instrument is swapped out on air our own design, our own engineering designs. We lower it, we park it in a garage underground, and we bring in a new moving ground plane. And the moving ground plane is better better sought or better described as a rolling road. So it doesn't provide the resistance, but it provides the exact wind speed that the air is traveling over. So that was always a consideration when doing physical simulations in a wind tunnel that your, your, your test object was stationary in the real world. Your, your test object, the vehicle, travels through the air and the wind flows over and under the vehicle. But the problem in a wind tunnel currently is that the ground isn't moving. So as a result, the resistance of the air over a stagnant floor creates a boundary layer, a, a layer of turbulence. And that is a slight air. But what happens, that air grows as the wind travels over the... On the walls, it doesn't matter because we're well away. But, you know, gravity makes us put the vehicle and have it on the ground. So how do you solve that? Well, you move the road. Wow. And it's... uh, So here we got another 100,000-pound device with extreme precision that is a plug-and-play. So nowhere in the world can we do this. And we put it on a large 11.7-meter turntable and we can turn it in the wind, and we develop a, a variable nozzle that can go from slower to larger, so when you turn it, you have more blockage. But, of course, you need to open the nozzle a little wider, and we're able to do that, and we're one of the few places that can do that as well. So we have a lot of innovations in this wind tunnel, and normally you would build three separate wind tunnels, an acoustic tunnel, a climatic tunnel, and an aerodynamic tunnel. And what we've done is developed 
through some innovation, the ability to do all that work all in one tunnel. Why is that important? Because now when you test an object in the wind stream, it is tested under the exact same wind conditions. So one tunnel to the next tunnel to the next tunnel, you don't have to do correlations or decide on errors. So in fact, it's in the same wind stream. So it's very, very important because when we look at electric vehicles and what we're talking about and moving forward in the mobilization and mobility is that the new frontier is not the shape of the vehicle on top, it's the shape of the vehicle under. So having preciseness under the vehicle is critical because now to get a you know, 10% improvement before, you can tell an SUV looks like this and a sedan looks like this, a square. You know what? That's low-hanging fruit. You want to make a 10% improvement, you're going to have to make 20 half percent improvements. So as a result, now the instrumentation and the devices that you use have to be even more precise because you're not measuring 10%, you're measuring a half percent, 20 times more sensitive. So that's the reason you have to invest and this is the reason you have to do things. So when you talk about electric vehicles or any vehicle, a third of the energy is spent on aerodynamics. A third one of that energy. One third of the energy is spent on uh, actually, um, and one third of that one third is actually spent through the wheels, as well. So, aerodynamics will play a role in in energy management. So, um, Ontario Tech is an energy university. This is this is what we do. Uh, whether it's in the development of hydrogen, it's in nuclear, it's in any facet, both from the human factors, from the society. Uh, and we play a role in the mobility part. So since we're at the APMA conference, right. let's, let's talk a little bit about Project Arrow. What can sure. you tell me about the work you're doing on that? Well, Project Arrow, a uh, very unique project with respect to and showcasing Canadian innovation and capabilities. And we are the lead academic institution for Phase 2 or the building and the, the, the finalizing of the design, the engagement of the suppliers, and the building of the first vehicle. Target, 20, January 2023. So we, we, heard, uh, we heard Toyota talk about you've got to have a goalpost. We have a goalpost, and we've got a tremendous Canadian supply base. We have our own ACE engineers. We have our own uh, world-class researchers, and I've got to tell you, we've got a student body that's getting engaged. So it's part of the educational process. It's part of uh, internships. It's part of capstones where their final senior year projects are providing solutions into this new vehicle. So it's engaging industry and academic right inside ACE in a dedicated build space and development space. That's fantastic. Yeah, we, we have other, uh, now I don't want to discount any of the other institutions. We have other institutions, of course, in Canada that are that are, are contributing as well in the university background, but we are actually the center site for the build. Wow. So just so you know, and I'm going to take this opportunity to plug, well, technically both of us, because what we have at Trillium is something we call the Manufacturing Ecosystem Partners. And for all of the manufacturers in Ontario, and we like to call it an ecosystem, uh, there are supports available to them. One of them is ACE. Absolutely. ACE, here you've got a $125 million advanced research facility that you can use by the hour. Or you can use, you can have, I've had actually graduating students that are entrepreneurial that needed to develop a, a small microgrid system that they developed, but they needed to work in all weathers because we are, we have four climatic chambers. We run minus 40 to plus 60, snow, wow. rain, anything. We do structural durability, but you can rent us by the hour. It's, it's really, uh, it, it's really uh, breaks down the barriers of a economic or systemic discrimination based on, on large companies. Only large companies have $100 million wind tunnels. But here's a tool in Canada's toolbox that anybody can use. I really can't say no to anybody other than we are very well utilized. By the hour. So well, yes. Now, now, quite honestly, it's usually four to eight or a week that's or several weeks. I mean, whatever your pocketbook can get or whatever you can go. So we are, uh, we, we do, of course, the, the 
we don't give anything away from free. However, we are extremely competitive in the global marketplace. That is fantastic to hear because it's following the trend of the collapsing and the falling and the precipitous drop of the prices and the costs of these new technologies. Because you're right, not everyone has a wind tunnel. Not everyone no. can afford a wind tunnel that costs. How much was your If you knock tunnel? on a big OEM's door and you've got an idea, they're going to say, no, we're too busy. Yeah. Right? But, uh, and therefore, how do you get that product to market? Uh, the climatic side of the wind tunnel is, you know, we can have a snowstorm in July or we can have the desert heat in January. We can click of a mouse, get snow, sleet, rain, ice, fog, 250 wow. kilometers per hour, whatever you're looking at. Um, so, and you can use it once for this product cycle, and maybe you come back in a couple of years for another product cycle, or you are having continuous product cycles. We have projects. In fact, we've done over $35 million worth of research and development work at the wind tunnel over the last 10 years. Every single one of those dollars would have left Canada. Every single dollar. In fact, we've reversed the trend because half of our revenue comes from out of Canada, and we have attracted and retained engineers in Canada. So it's been a really great success story from an infrastructure standpoint. So let's say there's a company listening right now who wants to get a hold of you. How do they do that? Well, it's really easy, to tell you the truth. It's just basically Google it and look under, say, Wind Tunnel Ace, and we're at ace.ca or Ontario Tech, and you'll get a quick link in. Uh, we have a business manager, uh, uh, Mark Clintworth, that, and, and a sales team that will immediately get back to you. And uh, it's a matter of asking. Like I said, it's a Canadian asset that I'm really not allowed to say no to people. <laughs> That's fantastic. Last question. Have your staff ever been known to recreate tropical breezes in the wind tunnel during their breaks? Uh, you know what? We like to do some, sometimes some outreach. And we've had some outreach activities, and we've had what we call 4D movies. And we've had, uh, you know, uh, in the middle of winter, brought in students with uh, a nice sunny solar lights and warm temperatures. <laughs> we've brought in, you know, uh, fake grass and a tiki bar and, a, and wow. uh, you know, a steel drum, you know, sound just to blow away some of the winter blues. It's uh, not happened often, but we've, we, we plan on getting more outreach activities as well as more outreach to prospective students and to, to the community as well so because we as a university are part of our community mm. and we are uh, a core research facility within that has the availability of introducing technology that's fun and making science fun and keeping the science from leaping it off the shelf and into the market so instead of it just leaving science on the shelf we take those ideas and prove a concept and get them into market for, for entrepreneurs, companies, whoever is interested. That's fantastic. John, thank you so much for joining me today. All and right. congratulations again on your award. What was the award for again? Technology in the sport of technology uh, in, in, in the marketplace. So. Very well deserved. Thank you so much. Thanks. So I just got back from the floor, and I've found another person to chat with, one of my very good friends, Mr. AJ Khan. And for those of you who don't know him, he is a cybersecurity expert. And um, he has, um, well, you know what? I'm going to let him introduce himself. AJ, tell us a little bit about the award you won and what you're doing with the APMA right now. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Uh, well, the award is called Donald S. Wood uh, Award. And uh, for me, that was focused on cybersecurity and innovation. Uh, I have been working with APMA since uh, 2019, when I became the co-chair of APMA Cybersecurity Committee. And um, uh, during this time, I have focused on enabling enhancement of cybersecurity awareness in the connected and autonomous vehicle sector. And I do feel that since we have come a long, long way, cybersecurity is now a critical portion of any conversation around uh, connected and autonomous vehicles. And um, it's a passion for me. So just so everyone knows, there's a, I'm going to tell a quick personal anecdote about AJ Khan's qualifications in cybersecurity. When my girlfriend had her identity stolen a few years back, a few years ago, uh, we didn't call the police because they, were, they weren't able to help. We called AJ. And I just wanted to thank you again that day because it was a very traumatic experience and one that I don't think either of us will forget, myself or my girlfriend. And 
that experience put the issue of cybersecurity for me front and center about the about how it's important, why it's important, and while we're all here talking about the connected vehicle, I remember hearing. Um, I, I, I'm not sure if it was Flavio who said, like, you know, we're all going to be connected, but we also that also leaves the door open for some bad players. What do we? I don't even know where to begin to ask you about this. So, what? Let's start it from the top. What do we need to know about the future of connected vehicles and cybersecurity? Well, you you just mentioned that uh, incident uh, the where some malicious actors. Uh, got uh, some critical personal information and got into accounts of your girlfriend. But uh, let me talk to you about ransomware 2.0. So you're sitting in a vehicle, a, a driverless vehicle, and the doors get locked, and the car is speeding at uh, you know 150 kilometers an hour, and you get a message: "Pay me through block, uh, you know, cryptocurrency, so much money. Only then I will stop the vehicle and open the doors." That's coming. That's ransomware 2.0, right? So, that's terrifying. Yes, and that's that's possible today. Let me give you another example. Um, you're traveling from, uh, you know, you go in uh, uh, an Uber to, let's say, uh, Toronto Pearson Airport, and from Toronto Pearson Airport you take a plane to uh, Paris, France, and in Paris, France you take a rail to Lyons. Well, your data is going everywhere with you. So are you secure? What if malicious, uh, you know, actors are doing data harvesting? I'll give you a third example. Electric vehicle charging stations, they're all connected at the back end. You have your account, you go in, you connect to that uh, account, and you charge your vehicle. Is your uh, account being harvested? Is your data being harvested? So whichever whichever area of uh, you know connected autonomous vehicles, the smart cities, the smart mobility you look at, cybersecurity is a huge, huge issue, and we are, have just begun to realize how much of a serious issue it is. So, AJ, I remember on the last time I chatted with you on the microphones, I remember that you, 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 you communicated to me the idea of there, is a, there needs to be a culture of cybersecurity. And the example you gave was the, the email. You know, it's like it, you can have all the best security you want, but if you get a ransomware attack and someone clicks the link, they've opened the door. So that, it, it, it's almost like, I get, so my question for you is, are we need, do we need a cultural shift or a cultural evolution of what we are aware of in the, in the connected vehicles of the future? Like, are, are we, is this going to be a technology problem or a culture problem I'm, or probably some mix of both? How do we, how do we get around this? Because this sounds terrifying. Well, technology is always just a solution, right? It's, it's the problem and it's the solution. But ultimately, it's a cultural problem. So uh, if you think about it, you know, last time when we met, um, that was before the pandemic. And during the pandemic, work from home and remote work and all of that has only enabled uh, the cybersecurity implications even more. Uh, now, as we go into connected and autonomous vehicles and like, you know, work from anywhere, anytime kind of thing, uh, what are the implications of that? Uh, how much data is your vehicle collecting? Uh, you know, uh, what is the implication, privacy implications of that? So there's so many things over here. And as we move along, one of the things which we have to realize is as consumers, we have to ask how secure is the vehicle. Right now, when you go to purchase a vehicle, you don't ask about whether it's, uh, what are the cybersecurity impacts of that? And if you ask, uh, they wouldn't know how to answer the question. So I think ultimately consumers have to drive that. They have to have those conversations. How much data is this vehicle connecting uh, for us? How, how much is, uh, what would happen if there's a cybersecurity incident? Is there some, you know, helpline to call? Who would I call if, this, if my vehicle is hacked? So those are the questions which need to be asked and answered by the consumers. So I'm going to go ahead and ask that question. Let's just say that, like, like, ha like what happened to me and my girlfriend. Um, well, actually, I shouldn't say me. What happened to her? We didn't really know what to do. We were helpless. They, like, I think I told you, they wiped the phone while I was holding it in my hand. So my question for you now is, when it comes to the connected vehicles, are there, is, are there regulations in place? Are there, uh, you know things you can do, other people you can call to say, hey, my car just got hacked, or hey, I'm speeding down the highway at 150 and I'm not driving. Help me. Are those things in place yet, or do they, or do they still need to be put in place? So the good news is that a lot of those things are coming. Uh, at least the awareness is there. So for example, I'll give you in uh, Europe, 
they have the UNEC WP29 uh, regulation which says that uh, you know vehicles need to be uh, have security by design in place cyber incidents need to be detected uh, when they happen so th those regulations are come now in the mandates are there they are they'll be effective 2022 and 2024 other uh, cyber security standards are coming but a lot of work has to be done there. I'll give you an example on the work I'm doing. So my company, Vehikila, Vehikila basically focuses on monitoring of vehicles from for cyber security. So if, if there is a problem, my company will monitor that vehicle and actually showcase, uh, you know, notifi notify owners on that. So those... My company is just one example of that. There are other great cyber startups coming in the mobility space, and those uh, issues will be resolved. But it would take, uh, you know, time, money, and effort, and it will take uh, a lot of uh, change in culture because, again, the consumers have to focus on that, have to drive that, and only then things will change. Last question. Currently, I am of the opinion, and I think maybe you might be too, that some of the biggest threats from cybersecurity, they don't come from these you know, evil hackers that are trying to crack passwords, and they're from the low-hanging fruit, the phishing attacks, right? The very... Do you think that for connected vehicles in the future, the biggest threat is going to be some of that low-hanging fruit where we open the door to attackers, or are they going to become more sophisticated and just, you know, just like brute force attacks and just like, you know, just take over your car? So... You know, my previous experience with IT, cybersecurity, there are different levels of hackers and there are different types of threats. So the same thing will happen in automotive cybersecurity. At the low level, we'll have what we call the script kiddies, which are, you know, just kids who just want to have fun trying to practice hacking. And a connected vehicle is a good target. But then above that, there will be malicious players who would be doing this for money, for example, ransomware attacks. And then above that, there would be uh, nation states using this, right? I mean, if you if they can bring down your whole uh, transportation ecosystem, what better way to attack your country? So I think, uh, you know, Canada and other countries need to take that uh, into consideration and make sure that they have a cyber-resilient transportation ecosystem. You just scared the heck out of me. You just said right now that they could take down your entire transportation infrastructure because if everything's connected... That's actually possible, isn't it? Yes, and we have something called the denial of service attack. So denial of service does not do, uh, does not exploit your system. It does not get into that system. It just denies the service. So if your vehicles are uh, not moving, if you imagine during the pandemic, if your, uh, you know, trucking fleets were not uh, moving and uh, they they were standing on the side of the road, that's denial of service. What would have happened to our economy? So yes, it's a huge, huge issue, and uh, I think. Uh, we need to be more aware of that and uh, organizations such as APMA through their recognition uh, on cybersecurity, they are doing that, uh, you know, that effort that they're making people recognize that this is something to look at and something where serious work needs to be done. I know I said last question, but I lied. This is the last question. What can you tell me about Project Arrow and the cybersecurity advancements that are going to come with that project? Yeah, so we're working with Project Arrow, and uh, one of the things which we are doing is uh, monitoring of the cyber incidents. So I think that would be unique. Uh, if you look at uh, Project Arrow, obviously uh, it has some great, uh, you know, connected components in it. But we go back to from a consumer side, how would the consumer know if there is a cybersecurity incident? And I think one of the things which uh, sh it, this project will showcase is that how important is having an integrated cybersecurity uh, interface into the vehicle itself. And if you can just go in and look at how secure your, your vehicle is, uh, I think that would add a lot of value to consumers. That sounds interesting. It is. It is going to be awesome. Wow. AJ, this is the first time I've seen you in, God, how long has it been? It's been, it's been some time. Yeah, this is. it's good to see you again in person, albeit six feet apart. But... Um, AJ, thank you for coming on the microphones with me again. It's good to see you. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. So for those of you just joining us, we've just finished the official schedule of the APMA Annual Conference, and I'm being joined by some, well, some, <laughs> an old friend, Lauren Tedesco. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Very well. Back in person, yep. seeing real live people. Feels Six feet good. apart. Yep. Yes. Socially distanced, I'll mention. Yep. 
high five. We'll <laughs> yes. get to those eventually. <laughs> and I've also got Shannon Miller here. Yep. Program officer of the Trulium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. Hello, hello. So, Lauren, what have you been up to since uh, forever? Well, uh, focused definitely on the future of work and not just during the pandemic, but what it looks like coming out of the pandemic. Mm. I would say we were looking at a lot of fantastic projects and then COVID hit and then suddenly the world fell apart and it was looking at how do we get people back on the job safely and now a shift into how do we do long-term meaningful work? Meaningful work. Meaningful Shannon, that work. sounds familiar, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> we recently did an event at Trillium. We did an event with the University of Waterloo's Higher Waterloo, yep. where we were talking about um, the value of bringing art students into manufacturing. Which, Interesting. Yeah, very unconventional talent pool, but this is a pool of people, like the social science students, the art students, uh, humanities. This is a pool of people that are trained to be adaptable and trained to be critical thinkers yes. and problem solvers. So we were talking about that and how, whether it's the art students or anybody else, um, including tradespersons, engineers, meaningful work is very important. And a major thing is the fact that employers don't get to define what work is meaningful. It yes. is the employee. So, employee. And know. I like that you mentioned talking about problem solving, critical thinking, because it doesn't matter what your educational background is mm -hmm. or if you don't have one at all. Um, that those are the key skills that looking forward at the end of the day, I think every employer is looking for, no matter what the role is. Agreed. Yeah, agreed. Now, tell us a little bit about, what's it called? It's DLPAM, right? Yes, but we now call it officially the Digital Learning Program. Okay. When did that change? Um, when we made a logo. <laughs> oh. Yes. When we put some branding behind it. There you go. Uh, so Digital Learning Program, it's officially launched. We Something that the APMA has been working on, I guess, for about two years now. Uh, again, pre-COVID, what does online learning look like for production line workers? COVID hit, and then suddenly we were right in step with everyone else on the planet, <laughs> uh, looking at how to go digital. So uh, really just focused on, you know, when we talk about electrification, but also when we talk about keeping people in the sector for a really long time, investing in professional development. And it doesn't just happen management and above. It needs to happen right on the ground floor. So digital learning program is really focused on small and medium-sized businesses who are resource-strapped, don't know where to turn for um, industry training, and to look at investments in training outside of health and safety. We do that too, but hmm. how can we go beyond that? Like lean manufacturing and leadership so that it is all done really digitally through micro-credentials, so it's small little snippets of learning and training because we know production line workers, they're on the floor for uh, their entire shift, oftentimes no access to computers. And so how can we make this accessible without pulling them off the production line for you know, hours or days at a time? So let's talk a little bit about the shifting culture. Um, we'll speak specifically to the auto sector because, well, we're at the APMA. Yes. <laughs> um, so Lauren, you work for the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association. Yes. And you're currently one of the VPs, correct? I am. And what is your title? Vice President Learning and Development. That's pretty, I, I like that. I, I, I think that's fantastic. Thank it, you. We have Canada's National Auto Parts Association, and you have someone with that title. I, I think that's fantastic. I think that's very forward-looking. And um, what's next? Once, you know, we've got, you know, after Christmas is done and New Year's resolutions are gone and broken, like, what's next? What's next? I think that a lot of our work, um, not just at APMA, we're looking outward beyond the sector as well. So what does workforce development look like? Um, that future of work where you know we need to bring in more people, build up that pipeline of talent, and really the upskilling of the current workforce and then that future workforce too, because we're not doing a great job as a the auto sector overall in marketing and communicating what a job in the sector looks like. And I think a lot of people think it's the job that maybe their parents or grandparents did. And they think of, you know, things as um, dirty and archaic and greasy. And really these facilities are state of the art and you have robotics and you have AI and you have um, a lot of people investing in 
that workforce now, but also learning how to do that. So there's so much potential that we're on the cusp of. And so I think for us over at the APMA, you know, we've launched a few programs like the digital learning program. We've launched the um, equity, diversity, and inclusion fund to look at how we can support employers um, in attracting new talent from new communities into the sector. And now how can we kind of bring all of that together and really put forward a strategy that can help the entire auto sector um, compete for that talent across the country because every industry is doing it right now we know like from forestry to hospitality etc and so how can we be leaders in that and finding the solutions and not just out there talking about the problem nice so looking at those jobs then um, what do some of those grade six sevens and eights out there what do they need to know about a job working in auto parts manufacturing I would say let's go even younger. Anywhere Ooh, in nice. the K to 12 stretch, so kindergarten to grade 12. I think once you hit high school, middle school or high school, a lot of decisions have already been made. That's true, mm-hmm. yeah. That's true. Uh, a lot of opinionated 12-year-olds and 13-year-olds out there, I'm sure. No. And so how do we look at <laughs> talking about sci- science and technology, you know, STEM, or now the new one, STEAM, because we had art in there. Those look at a lot of um, different careers, but I think automotive, what it really has to do is how do we increase exposure to it? Not just the skilled trades, which are fantastic, and we definitely need more people in there, especially uh, more women in that space, but how do we start showing them what those jobs look like? And it's not just on the production line. It could be a data scientist. You could, people think it's really cool, like I want the latest iPhone. Well, that car, the cars that those kids will be driving, is going to be more connected, more technology. You know, you think your apps are cool? Like, let's design a vehicle that is going to change everything. And we're really moving that big shift. And I think it's a good opportunity to get out there and to say those to those kids. And, you know, we've worked with um, Jeremy Hedges over at Inksmith. Um, he's doing a lot in terms of curriculum and Project Arrow's now been involved in that. So they're putting out little kits through Skills Ontario or Skills Canada, build your own mini Project Arrow and it's able to navigate on its own. So it's putting these little projects right into the hands of kids and not just talking to them about it, but showing it to them. Um, and whether it's, you know, talking about the Project Arrow overall or being able to build your own mini one, then they see the potential and they have their hands working and their brains working and talking to other kids about it. And so I think that's where we really need to to start um, to really kind of drive, drive that new um, generation into the sector and rethink what it looks like. Where can I get one? The kit? Yes. I don't even think they're out yet because of the microchip shortage, but oh. uh, <laughs> I think they're rolling out probably this year. Or, yeah, in 2022. So I will definitely keep you looped in because it's a fantastic project. That sounds like a lot of fun. It is. Um, one last question, and this yes. is a conversation that uh, I know Shannon and I have talked a lot about, and Lauren, you kind of just brushed over it real quick. How do we get more women in the trades, in the skilled trades and manufacturing? How do we do that? I think one of the biggest shifts that needs to happen is, um, again, at the school age level, when we look in that K-12 to stretch, it doesn't have to be going into university, which has been the stream for a really long time. I am a product of that. Yep, me too. That's not your only solution. And I think for so long, that has been the way that um, the curriculum has pushed, the school system has pushed, parents and guardians have pushed. And so how do we talk about colleges and skilled trades? How do we demonstrate that they are incredibly well-paid jobs? They are in high demand. They are uh, high quality. And I think, again, it's exposure. It's the same thing. And it's getting more women who are currently doing it vocal to show um, a lot of you know young women and girls. You can follow in my footsteps. There's mentorship there. Come out and talk to us because I think it's an intimidation factor right now. And you see a lot of men operating in that space, streaming into mm-hmm. that space. And when you open it up and you, you know, if you want, you know, if you see it, you can be it, um, that type of situation. But, you know, that's kind of the question that's been going on for decades. And I think uh, currently the provincial government is doing a great job in promoting skilled trades and driving that and doing the changes to the bureaucracy. But now it's really about getting those people in the sector out there talking to talking to kids about it. Wow. Shannon, do you have any questions? I do. Something, well, I don't know if it's a question, more like a comment, um, but something that I like that you touched on is 
like sharing the fact that there's a range of opportunities within manufacturing. Yes. Um, and you mentioned the arts bringing in for STEAM. Something else that popped to mind for me was marketing and the fact that we constantly talk about the fact that the manufacturing sector needs PR help. Yes. A lot of people would like to go into PR or would like to go into marketing and wouldn't, would never think of manufacturing as a field to go into. A lot of people have interest in sales or business analysis or graphic design, and that is something that keeps coming up. These are people that are needed within the sector. Maybe the sector, there are companies within the sector that don't even realize that they do need these people, but those are other opportunities that can be promoted to them. So, yeah. I think that's a good point. In a previous life, I was in PR and communications. I've done a lot of different things in my career. Oh, yeah. And I would say that a lot of the time working with the colleges, um, like I did my postgrad at Sheridan, my exposure was only to the employers that showed up Mm -hmm. for mock interviews or to speak to the class. I think the ability, especially in the colleges that are located really close to some of these businesses, um, to make those partnerships, not just in PR and communications, but all the other fields as well, Mm -hmm. because going to the post-secondary space and being able to tap in there. And honestly, I probably would have chosen a different path had, you know, a different company showed up, but it was PR agencies and it was kind of the easy path to go and the one that had already been forged. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is a really good comment and idea is reaching out into those spaces to be able to hear from communications professionals and get them to help craft our message. Wow. This is informative, Lauren. I'm, uh, it's good to see you again. Like, you too. And, you know, all the... Real you know, life. <laughs> yeah. There's no screen here. Yeah, this is yeah. good. Um, I was encouraged to hear uh, the, the discussion of Project Arrow talk about the importance of the art students and, getting, yes. and doing another competition. I was really encouraged by that. Yes. More than just production, being able to step back and, you know, I know they had the other speaker talking about building dreams and designing dreams and mm-hmm. what that looks like and... And it's true, you get to bring in the the art and the ideas and the dreams into that. I think it's going to be, the outcome will be unreal. Well, we will be keeping a close eye on you yes. well, in the you. new year. And I'm going, to be, I'm going to be keeping a close eye out for that kit. I will keep you informed. I am actually going to send an email right after this and find out for you. <laughs> <laughs> Lauren Tedesco from the APMA. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.